Happy New Year, Central. My name is Cody. I am a youth director here at the church, and I am honored to be bringing you the first sermon of 2021. Let me start off with a story. William Post III, also known as Bud, was a 40-year-old carnival worker. He had been in and out of jail. He didn't have a dollar to his name, and you could say that his life was purposeless and aimless. That is until he won over $16 million in the Pennsylvanian lottery in 1988. But within three months of winning, he found himself $500,000 in debt, mainly due to his purchase of a twin-engine airplane, even though he had no pilot's license. Within a few years in the early 1990s, although he was getting payments in increments of $500,000 a year, he declared bankruptcy. His bankruptcy lawyer was quoted as saying this, he did everything you would expect of a guy who became a millionaire overnight. While you might buy one laptop, Bud would see the same laptop and buy 30 of them. So Bud may seem like an unusual case, but a report was released saying that nearly one in, third, uh, or one in three of lottery winners eventually declare bankruptcy in their life. That is the human condition, to be given abundance and then wasting it. In today's passage, we are shown a unified community of believers that sees God's abundant generosity and uses it to bless others rather than to hoard it for themselves. These early followers of Jesus understood that Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, is a God of abundance who leads his people to live with abundant generosity. Because we took a break from the book of Acts so that we could focus on Advent, I'd like to recap the uh, narrative in which we find ourselves. So the book of Acts was written by a doctor named Luke, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. His purpose in writing Acts was to help readers have certainty with what they have been taught about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed Son of God. Luke writes an orderly account of how the early believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness or to testify of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that they could repent and believe in him. Acts 1 demonstrates how Jesus prepared his disciples for the, for the mission of witnessing in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2 is the story of a mass filling of the Holy Spirit uh, in the, uh, among the early believers. And, and through this spiritual outpouring, Peter, the apostle, who was uh, just a chapter earlier, was confused and scared, finds himself preaching a bold sermon that brings nearly three, or brings 3,000 men, more women and children, into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Acts 3 highlights even more power and boldness offered by the Holy Spirit as the apostles Peter and John heal a lame beggar outside of the Jewish temple. These apostles took this opportunity to share about how Yahweh, the God of their fathers, came to earth as the man Jesus. They called the people and religious leaders alike to repent, to turn away from their ignorance, their rebellion, their sin, and believe that Jesus himself fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. Which brings us to Acts 4, where Peter and John are taken to the religious courts to be put on trial for what they've done and said. They're commanded to refrain from speaking the name of Jesus, Yet empowered by the Spirit, they declare the supremacy of Christ. They say they need to share what they've seen and what they heard. 
After they're released, the early believers gather in prayer and and they ask that they will be given more boldness to share the same things that have just landed them on trial. After this prayer, we find ourselves in our passage, a, a summary statement regarding the practices of the early community of believers. In this text, we're first going to explore the impact of the knowledge that God is a generous giver. Next, we're going to see how a lifestyle of generosity is the only rational response to God's abundance. And finally, we're going to look at Barnabas, who is the prototype of generosity, who provides us an understanding that our God is one of abundance, who calls his people to live with abundant generosity. So first, God is a generous giver. Uh, Read with me verses 32 and 33. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The early believers are noted as being one in heart and soul, holding everything in common. But but what caused this unity? It's not their heritage. It's not their ethnicity. It's not their proximity. It's not even their social class. They are united by our Lord's gracious gifts of glory and of grace. The first, glory, is found in the fulfillment of our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. In the narrative of John, we, we find ourselves at the Last Supper before Jesus was to be tried and to be, sorry, arrested, tried, and then crucified. He's already washed the disciples' feet, exemplifying humble and sacrificial love, even to the one who is going to betray betray him just a little bit later. And then Jesus is recorded as teaching and praying for his disciples in the following chapters. And so in John 17, we read this prayer starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus prays not only for the disciples that were present, but also for people who will believe through their witness and through their testimony. That is highlighting all present and future believers. Our Lord prays that every believer is united by the glory contained in Jesus, which is now designated to every believer. But what does it mean to receive Christ's glory? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his book, The Weight of Glory. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. To receive glory is to be made right in God's sight. That is justification. It also means being transformed to look like Jesus day by day, meaning sanctification. The Apostle Paul regards glory in 2 Corinthians 3.18 by saying, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
When we believe and are gifted the glory of Christ, we are gifted a tangible representation of an eternal reality. We are gifted the opportunity of living right now in relationship with God through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. At the basis of our unity in Christ is the acceptance that comes from turning towards and believing in Jesus, being transformed into his likeness, glory. The second gift the text highlights is that of great grace upon them all. We just celebrated Christmas, which means we just celebrated the incarnation or the embodiment of God into the baby Jesus, in the baby Jesus. This baby came to fulfill or in other words, to fill up to the point of overflowing the entire hope of the Old Testament. That the exile of God's people caused by their brokenness and rebellion or sin will end and humanity will be reunited with their creator. When Jesus died, he took on the weight of our laziness of our deceptiveness, of lust, of murder, of greed, our sin, and he buried it. When he rose, he rose in victory, proclaiming that the exile is over and we can once again walk in intimacy with our Lord for eternity. This is grace. Receiving salvation when our rebellion demanded condemnation. So this is also our starting point with other believers. We have each been gifted glory and grace. That is where the early believers united. Even in our disagreements, our starting point is glory and grace. In the Netflix series, The Crown, which follows the royal family, Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth II, when uh, disciplining Winston Churchill, who is an elder in age and also in his position longer, when she is disciplining him, she says, I would ask you to consider your response in light of the respect that my rank and my office deserve not that which my age and gender would suggest. As disunity runs rampant, I believe the text urges us to consider the rank and office of our fellow believers, that they embody God's glory and they're recipients of God's grace. Can we still disagree with each other? Yes, but our starting point is with respect and love of the glory and grace that they hold and not with our feelings of opinionated superiority to the other. So with that in mind, I believe the text shows us the only rational response to God's abundant generosity is to live a lifestyle of generosity. Read with me verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and distributed to each as any had need. Oh no, I skipped it. Sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So when I was younger, I I helped out at a church uh, on Vancouver Island and I was a youth leader one year out of high school and a grade 12 student came up to me and he said, well, isn't this verse just promoting communism? And, And I was frozen, I didn't really have an answer. I think I just said uh, no, but I don't know why. And, and I think I know I have a better answer. So I hope he's somehow watching this stream and he wasn't just walking around confused for, for a few years. This community was not forced to give, but it was their reasonable response to everything they believed they have received from God. 
Dr. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project puts it this way. Material generosity is the only response to the gift given us in the life of Jesus. If you aren't materially sharing with others, there is a deep disconnect in the ways you think about the Christian faith. But how does glory and and grace translate into material generosity? Well, Jesus touches on this uh, during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 as he speaks about life in the kingdom of God. So jumping in at verse 26, this is what Jesus says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What we're seeing here is a mindset shift. Jesus is inviting his listeners to sit and ponder the birds, to stop and reflect on flowers. If they, being insignificant, are cared for by God, how much more will you receive God's care, O child of God? Yes, but birds don't have a mortgage and flowers aren't trying to send their kids to college. It's true. But let's not neglect the how much more statement that Jesus makes here. If our mindset is immediately drawn to the limitations of our own situation, then we will never be able to witness the extension of God's generosity and abundance. If we only focus on the limitations we will never witness the extension of God's generosity and abundance. Jesus was raised with a worldview that God created the world with enough, even more than enough, with absolute abundance. We can see that through the Old Testament narratives of provision and care that God has. But the human mindset is to see scarcity over abundance and to hoard for ourselves all things. The Apostle Paul made a point to highlight the generosity among early Christians when he wrote to the church in Corinth. So Corinth was a social hub. It was a trade route. It played host to many upper class and rich people. So Paul wrote to the church there in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among you, among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us." Though the churches of Macedonia were poor and in the middle of affliction, they saw that giving of and beyond their means to the apostles' mission was an act of grace. Out of their knowledge of God's gift of grace, by their own accord, they gave generously to the apostles' mission. They lived a lifestyle of generosity. 
Similarly, we see that the early believers in Acts were dead to the consumer race of the world. And we may think, well, they didn't have much to begin with. So what did they give? Did they give like a goat or did they give like a chicken or a pigeon or something? Well, no, it says they sold land and houses. Do you know what that would translate to in our time? Land and houses. What they're saying here is they didn't care about their, they didn't care about their legacy. They didn't care about their inheritance. They saw all of their possessions as tools given to them so they could do the work their King Jesus had for them to do. This is a call to action. And it almost begs the listener to dismiss the preacher or the church as as a money grabber who's only interested in squeezing out a little bit more of generosity as the Christmas season kind kind of trails off. But I would argue that this is your heart response to Scripture rather than the words that I'm saying. I've taken special care not to say the word money. I've used terms such as generosity with possessions of material or wealth. But but immediately, most of our minds, mine included, go to the need to protect our bank account because we don't think we have enough. We're under the illusion that there is not enough in the world and we must therefore protect, hoard up, store up what we do have. It's a scarcity mindset. And, and now in no way do I want to dismiss or downplay the plight of the financially burdened. I think about money way more than I should. I often tell my wife that we don't have enough. But in those moments, I have to ask myself, who is my master? Is, who is my Lord? If my master is money, there is no limit to what I can hoard up and preserve. But if my master is Jesus... There's no limit to what I can give as a graceful, grateful response to God who did not withhold his own son. So am I condoning selling all that you have to give to the poor and the church? Not necessarily. I live in a house. I own a car. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the pastors here either own a car or a house or even have a savings account. What I am inviting you to do is shift your mindset from one of scarcity to one of abundance. This means assuming that everything you own belongs to God and should be used as a response to his great generosity. If we can read Matthew 19, which highlights a rich young ruler who rejects Jesus' offer of eternal life because he wouldn't sell his possessions and our immediate response is, oh, but God would never ask that of me. We need to check our hearts, meaning we need to sit and ponder the birds. We need to stop and reflect on the lilies. Do I truly believe that God is generous and that he cares for me? Do I believe that the God who gifted me glory and grace can also do abundantly more in my life? So we saw God is an abundant giver and we've seen that the only rational response to this gift is to live a life of abundant generosity. But how does this look practically? I I want us to now shift and to look at Barnabas, the prototype of generosity. Uh, Turn with me, or let's look at verse 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph, also known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement, reflects a life sold out for Christ's mission. 
Barnabas is a key figure in scripture who demonstrates holistic generosity. He saw opportunities to live with abundant generosity as opportunities to share the gospel. This, this, this good news that the God of abundance extends his gift to all who repent and believe. He's not generous for generosity's sake, but he's generous with a purpose in mind. To do this, Barnabas uses his talents, his time, and his treasures. First, Barnabas was gifted with encouragement. He used his talents to further the work the apostles were accomplishing in the name of God's kingdom. Before Paul became the man who wrote most of the New Testament, he was Saul, persecutor of the way of Christ, killer of Christians. After Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus, Barnabas stood alone among the early believers to accept Paul's repentance. He petitioned for Paul in Jerusalem. He took him under his wing, and both of them went and proclaimed Jesus boldly. So where are you talented? Where are you gifted in life? How can, you, how can that gift be used for the mission of God? In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul notes that every aspect of a Christian's life has potential to honor God when he writes, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. C.S. Lewis picks up on this theme in a different essay found in the book, The Weight of Glory, when he says, All our merely natural activities will be accepted if they are offered to God, even the humblest. And all of them, even the noblest, will be sinful if they are not. Christianity does not simply replace our natural life and substitute a new one. It is rather a new organization which exploits to its own supernatural end these natural materials. Lewis is stating that when we surrender our natural, our, our natural abilities, our God-given talents to God's mission, he will use them to extend the gospel, excluding, of course, any talents that would actively rebel against God or his word. So are you a musician? Do it to the glory of God. Are you eloquent in writing or in speaking to the glory of God, brother or sister? Are you talented in skating, in running, in organizing, in empathizing with people? Find ways, look for opportunities in the community and in the church to use these talents as a means to share the gospel with those around you. Barnabas was generous with his talent. Next, we can see that he's generous with his time, which goes hand in hand with talent. Do you think that Saul became Paul overnight? I mean, maybe the, the name change, but, but the person, it took a lot of work. It took hours and days and years of preparation and teaching to, to build him up in the knowledge of Jesus. It's as if someone was a Boston Red Sox fan and they finally converted over to the right belief that the Toronto Blue Jays were the best baseball team. Well, it would take hours to remind that person not to cheer for Boston, not to care about the stats of Alex Verdugo, not to care about a Boston home run. Likewise, it, it would have taken Barnabas many hours, many days, maybe even many years to train up Paul in the knowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, not the law. Barnabas took the time to travel and to share the gospel with churches and people, even in his hometown of Cyprus. Where do you spend your time? Are you investing in younger believers, encouraging them to persevere through doubts? Sure, the pandemic makes it difficult to disciple, but it doesn't make it impossible. Are you spending time getting to know the local poor and needy in your community? Are you spending time getting to know the needs of your community? 
Are you investing time in the church, in the Bible, in prayer? Uh, a question I was asked when I was younger that, that still haunts me to this day, or some would say challenges me to this day, came from Pastor Paul Washer. And he asked, if someone were to follow you for the day and mimic everything that you did, would they grow closer to God or further away? Are you using your time generously? Finally, Barnabas gave of his treasures. This is the financial hook. He sold a field that belonged to him and placed it at the disciples' feet. Are there any possessions you have that are off limits to God or is everything you own understood to be a gift of our gracious Lord and being used as such? Do you allow the fear of losing money to outweigh the fear of losing out on an opportunity to share the gospel or even the fear of God itself? Are finances your master or does Jesus have complete surrender and obedience in the realm of finances? A small encouragement or a short encouragement as we close. Living generously is not a prerequisite to salvation. It is not salvific. Notice how grace came before generosity. But this text should leave us all questioning our priorities and motivations in life. My wife, Sydney, and I were, were hit financially during COVID, as I, as I imagine many were. But during that time, we were able to see the amazing generosity of the people in this church. To my brother who gave his time, his talents, and his treasure to fix our car when it broke down on us, thank you for reflecting Jesus to me. To my sister who, who gave of her treasures to lend us a car for a few months while, while ours was being fixed, thank you for reflecting Jesus to me. To my brothers who, who blessed us fin or, or, or who gave us a financial gift so that our Christmas was, was defined by joy and by gratefulness rather than fear or worry, thank you for your gospel work. To my brother who, who bought an extra meal at lunch strictly so that he could go outside and bring it to the man who was begging on the street and share the gospel with him, thank you for your gospel work and for using your treasure and time for that. To the youth and the youth leaders who decided to sleep outside to bring awareness to homeless youth, thank you for your gospel work. And to this amazing congregation who gave generously of their treasures so that we could make these backpacks of hope and care and love our community tangibly and show them that God's abundance extends to them, thank you for your generosity and for your gospel work. Church, this year, let's not look for exceptions or loopholes to living generously, but let's find reason to live generous, generously as we allow the knowledge of our God's abundant gift to, of, of grace and glory, we allow that to spur us forward. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this passage where we saw the unity of of the early believers united by glory and grace and out of that knowledge came abundant generosity. Lord, thank you for this challenge, uh, this understanding of, of our response to your word, our response to your gift. Father, I ask as we go forward into this year of 2021 that it would be marked by great and abundant generosity, that, that the church would be a force in the community, showing love and showing care and using those opportunities of generosity to be opportunities to share your good news of eternal life and love.
Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study this word. It, it has challenged me in so many ways. And so um, continue speaking to us, Lord. Continue revealing your grace to us. Continue revealing your glory to us as we seek to do your will this year. We thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.